0: What did you have for breakfast today?
1: Cool. Is this part of the sound Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. This, is a, this is a story. Are you ready for this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 2017, I'm uh, doing a lot of things, but one, I'm uh, learning how to cook better. Like okay. I'm committed to learning how to be better at this craft. Um, I'm quite passionate about it. I've been really into it in the past, but like I'm starting this year with the ambition of trying to work my way through a cookbook start to finish. And so yeah. I've um of all the cookbooks I've picked the um the broadsheet one just cuz it like picks from a you know a plethora of different like cuisines and styles and whatever else and also it's kind of like quintessentially melbourne which is kind of up my alley. Um but yeah, like I haven't made it past the breakfast section yet. Okay. And to be fair, I haven't really made it past the like eggs for breakfast section. So, like, I've been refining my art of like making these beautiful eggs. Okay. So, like, I'm just getting my poached eggs perfect. And then, like, I basically cook up like a, like a granny type thing. So, I'm a little bit health conscious. So, it's like a, I'll throw in like kale, broccoli, um, pine nuts, um, and then like throw in some like feta, lime, blueberries. Yeah. Spice it up a little bit. Um, and then a couple of poached eggs on top okay sounds beautiful <laughs> when are you going to cook me some I'll honestly have that five <laughs> minutes a week if you ever stay over I then mean, I'll, I'll definitely make you breakfast yeah for all
0: those working in Spy 9 next time you see Nathan hit him up for some uh, some eggs. <laughs> yeah that sounds awesome Welcome to The Uncommon Podcast, and I'm your host, Jordan Michael We interview unique individuals and investigate interesting topics, helping you to build the uncommon sense crucial to increasing performance. Our guests have included venture capitalists, strength coaches, human rights lawyers, chefs, restaurateurs, and spoken word poets, just to name a few. And we're really inspired by the likes of Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, and Charlie Munger, who... I think Charlie in particular has influenced us, always emphasizing that building worldly wisdom or that uncommon sense is critical for your growth as an as an individual. If you want to learn more about these previous guests, you can head to noreal.com slash podcast, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash podcast. If you like this episode, make sure you leave us a review. It's really important for us to grow our community and those reviews are crucial to that. In return, you can win a few prizes that we've had for our launch competition, including an Apple Watch 2, my favorite, the Kindle Paperwhite and an Amazon gift card. For further steps, again, head to neuralcom slash podcast where you can also get the show notes for this episode and sign up to have priority access as, as a cognitive insider, as we call it. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Uh, that's just at Nural, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E, and the same for Twitter as well. In this episode, we recorded with Nathan Sampimon, who I think is one of the most selfless people I've met so far in the Victorian startup community. By founding Inspire9 and building his own little community around it, it has indirectly pushed the Melbourne startup scene forward. It's forced... I know from going to these events myself at Inspire9, I think it's forced many wannabe entrepreneurs or geeks into hobbies or businesses they would just never have thought of doing if they were sitting at home. Um, His work as one of the founders of Cube only supported the community further and we're sure that we'll see even better and greater things from Dream Factory and Tribes as it starts to flourish. This podcast I think is a brilliant lesson in all aspects of business Community, working out life balance and startups as a whole. Some of the topics we covered uh, at the very start were founder burnout or realizations coming from taking an extended break uh, and therefore taking advantage of the work-life balance that you can have, teaching resilience and gratitude, the enjoyment of his hobby for cycling, the inception of Inspire9 and therefore growing the startup community around that, We talked about what he would do if he had the opportunity to plan out the city of Melbourne and foster a better community that way, what the Tribes app actually is, and then what he looks for in investments when he invests in startups. So I think, as I said, this is a really good episode for understanding more about business, community, life balance, and startups. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Nathan Sampimon. Well, we're live then. Nathan, thank you for joining. Thank you. Um, I, As well as, I guess, thanking you for joining. I think one of the things when I was digging around, and uh, we'll get into what you do uh, in a sec, but one of the things I was digging around is that I think a lot of people are very, um, not not so much thankful, but appreciative of, you know, I don't know if, when you thought about doing Inspire Nine first, and when you started it, it was going to be what it w- what it became to be. But I mean, I went to God. I think I- I've been to so many events at Inspire Nine. I think it's done a lot for the community here in Melbourne. So I think everyone is is very thankful. So well done on that, <laughs> first <Thanks>. of all. <laughs> um, but maybe we'll we'll get into uh, what what you do. So. Inspire Nine, maybe tell people what that what that's about and what how that originally started, Uh, tribes and what you're doing in in San Fran, and uh, you know maybe even Angel Cube as well. Sure. So tell us about Inspire Nine. What is it?
1: Yeah, cool. So Inspire Nine is a um, so Inspire Nine is a community essentially. So um, winding back, Inspire Nine is the original community led co working space in Melbourne. So we started out in 2009. Um, and today it's a community of a few thousand people, mostly from Melbourne, Australia. But okay. Like people drop in from all around the world and they can come into our workspaces and, you know, interact with our community and come to events there and hang out. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely grown in size since 2009.
0: Yeah. And so now you've, you've taken more of a backseat to that. You don't, you're not so much the, were you previously listed as the CEO? Yes, yeah. I was a
1: CEO for a long time and then I had this amazing GM under me for the last couple of years Okay, and between the two of us, we decided that um, it was appropriate for us to hand over that CEO ship to someone to take that to the next level.
0: Okay, and so you've, you've taken a backseat there, still involved obviously, what, what are you doing now with a lot of your time? Sort of, I, I saw what you're doing with the Dream Factory in Footscray, it is Footscray, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yep. Uh, so, yeah, the Dream Factory is our new co-working space okay. over in, in Footscray, like you say. So Nine previously has had its roots deeply deeply planted in, in the east side of Melbourne in, in Richmond. So we've been from Cremorne through to Richmond, and then we expanded into another uh, level of the of the That's floor right. over in Richmond. Yeah. So across the two floor spaces, level one and level three, uh, in Stewart Street in Richmond, um, there's around about 1,400, 1,500 square metres of, yeah. of space. And that's been fantastic. Like we have these two levels. So the bottom level is our open accessible community co-working space where anyone can come in. They can sort of interact uh, with our community.
0: Okay.
1: Come in for events. Uh, It's like very, very entry level when it comes to like exploring entrepreneurship, you know, enjoying startups. If you've got an idea and you want to turn it into, into something big and take that first step, then level one's for you. Level 3 is this sort of next stage startup space.
0: Okay, so leveling up. Leveling up. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
1: yeah. We we so again like inspire nine is deeply rooted in community as well so like we're trying to be default inclusive and open with everything that we do so we don't think about it as being too exclusive on level three but certainly like there are people inside of our community which have different needs okay and so up there you've got these like growth stage startups so startups that may have raised a series a or you know really focusing on the growth of their their business they've normally hit some sort of uh stride so they might have hit product market fit and You know, they've got some stuff that's flying out the door and they're now ready to expand that and grow that. Okay. And so up there we're trying to architect like a more focused um, community co-working space. Okay. So you've got this mix of like a few different groups. So we have like growth stage Melbourne-based or Australian-based startups. We have... Uh, l- larger companies, the likes of like your Silicon Valley unicorns that come over and have a, a presence here in uh, either Melbourne, Australia or APAC. Right. And the likes of your Stripes, Etsy's, Eventbrites, those kinds of companies. Okay. And then also high potential founders. So founders who might have left their previous startup, either exited or um, have been acquired and are looking for their next venture and just need a place to, to come in and be in that rich environment. Okay.
0: And you're spending, we were discussing before, you're spending a bit of time now in San Fran.
1: What are you doing over there? So, uh, as a, as a now an honorary San Franciscan, I think they would also like uh, cringe if they heard you say the word San Fran. So like over really? there, it has to be a San Francisco. isn't that funny? Really? Yeah, it's so strange, but they. They're is that, is that like
0: a, what's in that? Is there anything?
1: I'd say it's the same thing as people calling Melbourne, Melbourne. Like, it's just like, okay. it's just, yeah, a cultural thing where, I don't know. Yeah. It's a very good question. I can't Committee tell. faux pas already. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's totally fine. It's like <laughs> so common now. Uh, yeah. So San Francisco San is part of a bigger story. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been going backwards and forwards from San Francisco for like the last six years. Right. Uh, mostly through Angel Cube. So, Angel Cube is a startup accelerator that Adrian Cern and I founded in 2010. Mm-hmm. And through that program, at the end of it, we used to have this US roadshow where we used to take our startups, our batch, um, on this pitching tour to um, try and raise money, to um, you know get their brand out there, to acquire customers, mentorship, advisors, whatnot. Um, and there was you know a few stops in that tour: Melbourne, Sydney, San Francisco, and then New York. Okay. And so each year I would. Go across on that U.S. roadshow with Angel Cube and with our, our startup batch, and uh, um, run these events in, in San Francisco and in New York. Yeah.
0: So, what do you? I guess what do you envisage the next next stage
1: for you? The next stage. What does what,
0: what does Nathan do in his next stage of life?
1: Yeah, good question. Good question. So I guess like working it out. Well, yeah. So the big thing for me is like I after running Inspire Nine for that for so long, and then Angel Cube. And I also had a software development company that I started in 2006. So running these three companies for a long, long time, it got to the stage where I was uh, like significantly burnt out yeah. by the end of 2015. So this concept of like founder burnout is like really, really common and you hear it a lot in the startup community. Um, I was burning the candle at both ends, like really reaching for energy come the end of say 2015. And um, it just so happened that I'd planned this holiday. And my holidays was, you know, when you're when you're working for these companies, like you you know really reach to find five, seven days where you can like steal yourself away and, and try and get get some relaxation into you. Yeah. I ended up uh planning this holiday to Thailand and I was supposed to meet a couple of friends. Okay. Um, but both of those friends ended up having other commitments and I was there on my own for this like sort of seven days. And um, you know, Wandering around Thailand, wondering what to do with myself, and I sort of put the word out there that I was there and had no plans, and asked asked my community, asked my sort of social group uh, what what I should do. And this um, a, a close friend of mine said, "Oh, you should head down to this like health retreat on the back of this island uh, in in the Thai Gulf." And so I made my way down there. And then in this health retreat, I started doing yoga and started like doing meditation and started like doing all these things that I wouldn't have let myself have the time for previously because I, I felt like I should have been working and sort of basically had a, a proper relaxing holiday and some time away. Yeah. And um, what started out as seven days turned into like six weeks. And so really? I just basically didn't didn't leave or couldn't leave. Are you serious? And uh, on, this, on this island in Thailand, I decided that, you know, the last uh, seven years that I'd been uh, running Inspire9 for and – You know everything else piling up. I decided that I didn't want to do that for another year. I decided that I wasn't the best person to come back and invest all this energy into, like growing the, you know, doing what I needed to be doing for the customers, like in terms of running those teams. Like I was, I was burnt out. I didn't feel like I was doing the best job. I felt like it was, um, yeah, not 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 benefit not a benefit for me, not a benefit for all the people in terms of everyone who was working with me, the customers, like everything else, as well as the startup community in Melbourne around Angel Cube. It's interesting because
0: I feel like this doesn't get spoken about much, you know. Like you covered before about that burnout. I mean, so th- this must have been—was this recent? Was this the last year or so?
1: Yeah. So at the end of two thousand fifteen, was going we okay, on a holiday. Right. So um, after spending six weeks on this island, um, well, after even even a few weeks in, I decided, hey, this is not what I want to be doing, and so I made some calls and I. Appointed uh, a CEO for Inspire. Basically, what I did was I dissolved all my responsibilities here in Melbourne. So I appointed a CEO for Inspire Nine. Um, Angel Cube, our startup accelerator, got acquired, and our my software development company. I made our entire team location independent, so everyone could work from anywhere. Right. and created that fluidity in our workflow, so that we could be, you know, have a lot more of a, of a sort of lifestyle focus, or at least like listen to ourselves a bit more. Yeah.
0: Do you do you think that moment in Thailand was sort of the moment where your mindset changed, or was, but me was it before that before you went away? It were, was. Were you, a, in, were you a breaking point before you went away, and you just said, "Fuck it, I need to, I
1: need to go." Totally. Yeah. I was. I was. Yeah. It was years uh, of that burnout state that I was working through, right. and the way that like uh, burnout works is it's like acquiring debt. So you acquire this energy debt. So every like three months that you pour into it, you're like extending your your time that you need to then repay that energy for like another three months. So it was like through, I probably hit like a point at which I should have really uh, shuffled things up in like 2013 or yeah, end of 2012, maybe not probably start of 2013. Um, That was when like, you know, I was, I hired an assistant to try and help me organize things. Like I created like a separate group in between these three companies to like orientate around like better organizing my time and you know things were just getting a lot more hectic right um but certainly like i was still pulling long hours um and so so what was the typical day like for you back then yeah because you're running three companies
0: and they're not like you know you've got to think a startup alone running one of those or just a business in general you're working at least 10 hours a day guaranteed so I can't imagine you're trying to you got fingers in different pies. You know, Angel Cube is not really a startup, it's an incubator, but there's still commitments that come with that. Inspire nine and so forth. How how big of a deal was it? Like how, how much work were you doing?
1: I mean, I was doing a lot of work, but I mean I've stopped measuring on the sheer number of hours. And I, I don't really believe in this concept of working harder. I believe in working smarter. Yes. so I guess for me, I didn't have the capacity to continually improve. Like the rate of of improving the, the smartness of the way in which I worked had dropped. Like yeah. I wasn't getting any better.
0: This sort of law of diminishing returns and sure. hit, hit,
1: yeah. Sure. So I, I could have kept doing that and I could have kept producing that same output for a long time probably. Um, but, you know, there wasn't that explosive changes. Wasn't there wasn't uh, those aha moments where I had like this huge like personal growth Um, game changes like quake moments where like it shook my understanding of everything that had been beforehand and I was a different person moving forward. Yeah. You need to allow space for that and you need to have like a certain mindset to be open to that sort of stuff happening. And I didn't have that for, for a couple of years at least. Yeah. And so I think that's the biggest, the biggest, uh, thing that I've realized now over the last 12 months is like, when you don't allow that time and that space for that sort of stuff to happen, then it doesn't. It can't. There's no way you let it in. I wasn't open to that sort of stuff happening. I wasn't open to having an idea about totally changing my workflow. I wasn't open to the idea of like transforming our organizational structure to allow for higher efficiency.
0: Yeah. And so, you we were talking before when we did our sound check about breakfast and, and one of the things that you were talking about is getting better at cooking. Do you now – it sort of sounds like now that – your, you've instituted things to make your life better in different ways, and not just better at work. What What have you done in that way since that that time back in um, you know twenty fifteen, where you were sort of div- dissolving that ownership and
1: and and focusing more on yourself? It seems. Yeah, sure. Look, I've done a, a lot of things. I think uh, the primary thing for me is like again just that space and the openness. So in the mornings, like my my breakfast routine is. Um, is a big one. Like I decided that mornings, like at least the first couple of hours of every day was going to be for me. So rather than waking up, jumping on emails, like rushing into work and starting the day a couple of hours before everyone else to try and get ahead in that quiet time where no one would call you. Like beforehand, that was that was my routine. I would right. use that time to um to have that time away from when I knew that I was contactable, when I knew I had to interface with teams, customers, partners, whatever that looked like. Right. But um, now it's for me. <laughs> so, now I get to get up and like do a couple of hours of whatever. So, it normally it looks like some yoga practice. Okay. Um, maybe like a gratitude ritual. Yeah. Uh, I cook a decent breakfast. I like will you know, purposely cook like a 45-minute, a one-hour breakfast every morning. Nice.
0: Yeah. And so, with, with the gratitude um, sort of... Uh, system that you're using are you journaling or are you just sitting there through meditation or probably a bit
1: more of a meditative thing the way i think about it is like i feel like everyone in their life should be a salesperson at some stage everyone in their life should be in hospitality so that you learn these like quintessential traits of those industries like with a salesperson you see you hear so many no's that you learn to have to like pep yourself up and you have to say "Hey." (laughs) you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be okay today things are gonna go really really well like the world's not okay if i hear the no i'm just gonna keep fighting for that yes like and that mentality i think is like really kind of healthy in terms of like being able to um strive like define what it is that you want for one thing strive for that thing and like be okay with like all these knockbacks and hard hits that come along the way with hospitality you like learn how to like cultivate an experience with someone and like really turn that on for them and like you know, provide them something that they may not otherwise get. Yeah. And that, that thoughtfulness and that consciousness of someone else's experience makes you better at customer service. Be able to craft better products, like really think of what it's like to drive someone through an experience.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I've worked in both roles. I mean, yeah. now I, I do primarily, it's account management, but it's really consulting so selling. The hospitality thing is spot on, but also in hospitality, you learn to deal with so much shit. Absolutely. And so much as well in uh, when you're selling, it's like my partner asked me the other day how uh, sort of how to describe it to him. It's basically you just you just don't care, and it's so weird because I used to be such an introverted person, um, like very analytical, not very talkative. Um, I wouldn't say I'm exactly extroverted now, but it's more so that I've been through through so many embarrassing slash humiliating experiences selling and, and doing hospita- hospitality that yeah. you just, you no longer care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you still need to cultivate it. You need to sort of push yourself to do that. Yeah. But um, yeah. it's yeah, intriguing so, um, how it just changes you completely. Totally. It
1: does. And yeah. like, uh, yeah, it makes you so conscious of yeah. these things that you otherwise might be totally ignorant to. Like
0: it just makes me remember I used to have one of my first ever girlfriends and this is ridiculous because I was like 14. Here we go. And uh, so they were twins. Huh. And it was my best mate was dating one and I was dating the other. You know, it was ri- totally ridiculous. Like 13, 14, you might kiss each other every now and then. It's not a real relationship. It yeah. was just mainly
1: like uh, friendship more than anything. When you but- say twins, I thought you were going to say that you were dating both girls. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> wow.
0: No, not at all. Um, and I just remember he broke up with one at a, like after six months and I was just like so... Um, lacking confidence that I couldn't date the other and they lived around the corner in another suburb. And I remember, um, I couldn't go down the main street because right. I was paranoid that I was going to run into them. Mm, and then yeah. 2 years later I'm working in hospitality and dropping glasses of red wine on people before they go into the movies. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, yeah, that
1: trans 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 uh translation. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: awesome. Life comes at you fast. That's awesome. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. So yeah, I think for me that the gratitude ritual was like that idea of uh becoming you know pushing that all the things that I'm grateful for into the forefront and making sure that like that was what I was attracting in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So same sort of thing though. Like yeah. Okay.
0: And so are there any other things you do? So you got the the cooking each day, the meditation, the yoga. Do you make sure that you exercise on top of that? Like is there anything else that so you So
1: for me, yoga is that exercise meditation mix. Okay. Like um I'm not great at just sitting still and meditating. I can give it a good shot and I'm, you know I'm sure that I'll get better and better at it. I know people who just do the meditation and the yoga would come second, but for me the yoga is like just it's like a interweaving of of those two things. And that that really appeals to me. Like previously I used to run quite religiously. So, I used to you know go out for a minimum 5k run. Yeah. Even when I was um even when I was quite busy, I'd try and do that like a few times a week. Yeah. Um, but and that's now been completely replaced. Like 2016 was the first year in like over a decade that I didn't like run regularly.
0: Really? Mm. But now you start, you, you're a big cycler, aren't you?
1: I've been cycling <laughs> pretty heavily for like the last four years. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I just fell in love with that, that sport. Like it's just so awesome. Yeah. I, um, so I had some friends who had just gotten into road cycling. Okay. I wasn't ever into road cycling beforehand. And like the whole idea of like, you know, old men in Lycra, you know, driving along.
0: Mammals, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Going <laughs> along Bay Street, it just wasn't quite my thing. Um, but, you know, when I got out there and did it, like, it was amazing. Yeah. Not just that, but we had this ritual where, like, these guys were super serious about a particular type of cycling, climbing, which is, like, where you go into the hills and... And, and you only do that. Do these big climbs. It wasn't was that I only do that. It's just the thing that that resonates most with me. Okay. Our routine would be, like, you know, leaving the city around five getting onto the base of the mountain around six o'clock and then like starting like this slow sort of three, four hour ascent of these, these hills and mountains in beautiful like countryside, like up these incredible environments where there's like subclimates, microclimates. And it's just you and the animals. There's obviously no cars around.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I I remember like, I I absolutely love it. I think one of the best things we did when we moved to the city is we sold our cars. We bought these two bikes Awesome. They were secondhand and then we just got, uh, it's called Bikes Please in Fitzroy or Brunswick, I think. Okay. Uh, they just like convert secondhand bikes into sort of uh, um, fixie type bikes. This what Mine's awesome. got like six gears or something like that. Hmm. Um, but the best investment I made, I, I just love the feeling of, um, you know, like people talk about walking as like a form of uh, meditation and getting your thoughts out, but I find that riding a bike is because you're going fast as well and there's a bit of adrenaline there i don't know I, there's something about it that i i find
1: um yeah it's just really nice i mean i would fly but i feel like it's the easiest way it's a it's the closest thing to flying that you possibly could do yeah that's accessible to you you yeah. know what i mean like you, when you're weaving in between traffic or flying down a hill or like <laughs> you know really pumping it uh down a straight it's it's an incredible feeling. Yeah. And particularly riding at night. I love riding at night. Yeah. There's something
0: saying like mysterious about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I um, yeah, have a habit of like letting my um, lights run out of batteries and then, yeah, attracting the wrong kind of attention at night. But yeah, it's <laughs> certainly an awesome experience. Jesus. <laughs> it just reminds me of,
0: um, uh, yeah, I had a workmate who had a, a weird scenario once. He had three guys try to jump him in this park here We'd, Just obviously looking at Fitzroy Treasury Gardens. This was years and years ago. Mm. He just lived over the road. uh, Over the road. Over the park in East Melbourne. Mm. But he was riding without lights. And yeah, three people just tried to like- Really? Spear tackle him. Yeah. Wow. Got knocked off. Pretty badly scraped. But he's a big guy. He was like 6'4". Right. Um, Yeah, just built like a brick shit house. They were not going to get on top of him. I don't know what they were trying to do. I don't know if they were trying to rob him.
1: Wow. I've never heard of him before.
0: Yeah, there's been talks that- there's a really weird thing. There's um, like men have been raped by men down in. There's like a toilet down in uh, Treasury Gardens. Goodness! So people were like hypothesising that it could be that, but right. I mean, that would be weird in plain in plain sight as well. Mm. I think they were trying to rob him, but mm. that Very park strange. at night can, can be a little bit dodged. Yeah, well, I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, but this was years ago, mind you, so it may not. I
1: I doubt it happens regularly. Mm, mm, mm. Um, Yeah. But I'm a a massive fan of cycling. I think, um, yeah, cycling is certainly my preferred way of getting around cities. Like it's, yeah, much much more fun than catching public transport. Melbourne mm-hmm. and now, like having been away from Melbourne now for twelve months. Yeah. I see so many more cyclists on the road. It's awesome. Like well, when I was, you know, when I was cycling around, and one of those cyclists way back when, I was like, ah, oh, I'd love to see more of these people on the road, and like for us to really have a presence amongst all these cars. And it's it's really happening. Like there's so many more cyclists on the road.
0: If you consider like, so you're staying in the north side now. Like how much that that sort of city council has developed that area for cyclists and then
1: Melbourne city council now as
0: well. Riding here is just a pleasure, man. Totally. The um, Napier,
1: Napier highway, bike highway. That's pretty awesome. I feel like it's just uh, like a lot of people that I know now use that as their default method of, of getting around, which, you know, was certainly unheard, you know, of. unheard of beforehand. <laughs> it's so great. I love it. So I want to get back
0: to sort of the catalyst for inspire nine. Yeah. Um, now, I can't find much, but I know that one of the things you wrote about was creating a place for, was it rocket scientists? Something along <laughs> along those lines. But you wanted to create a place for people doing cool shit, basically, is, yeah. is the gist of what I got. Now, what, what had led up to that? What, what had you done before that? And what was sort of the skill sets in your mind that you thought, I can use this and I'm just going to make this place and we'll just go for it?
1: Totally, yeah. Well, I've been working with a lot of uh, software developers before that and you know I was well wedded to the idea of creating like of sort of innovating of creating new products and pushing them out to market at the time I was more of a consumer focused product person uh, but nowadays obviously like yeah, you know our b2b style uh, startups are really seeing some some wind so um, at the time yeah I just love the idea of like building innovative products for, for people and being a in a young 20 something in the city I just wasn't able to find places to to get together with other people and do that so I'm chronically extroverted so the thing for me was I like to work in you know uh, environments with a whole lot of other people I like it to be noisy for there to be a good energy okay and so you know I essentially went out there and just solved my own problem which was like trying to find a place where I could gather around all these people working on all these cool things where like there could be like open knowledge share Um, also coming from like a software development background, I am, you know, wedded to this idea of open source and this, you know, concept of rather than having proprietary information that you hug and keep, keep confined to your own, uh, organization or whatever. Um, putting it, putting an idea out there for other people to iterate on and, you know, using the, the betterment of the masses, you know, we're better together. This whole idea of everyone <laughs> contributing a little bit and it gradually getting better and better and better. Yeah. And it just transforms, like, I mean, it's, it's totally transformed technology. It's totally transformed of course, yeah. software development because there's these open source libraries which are now so mature and so well thought through as a result of having all these people touch the code base and make minor improvements all over the place. Oh, definitely. Um, so that idea, I really wanted to translate into like a work community. Um, what else was there? Like, yeah, open knowledge sharing, like a, a a place where people could share their their failures and like what they what they learnt. So for me, I had some things. I, I came out of university and decided that the first thing I was going to do was sort of start a company. <laughs> at <laughs> the time, yeah. At the time, <laughs> I really wanted to do um, something in the social good space, in the social impact space, to do with technology affecting a wide you know, group of people like having, you know, monumental impact. And I think the first – I realized that that wasn't going to be the primary thing that I could do because I needed to to put some food into my mouth. So I went out there and, and started to do some client work and consult for, uh, for, for companies. And basically my first large-scale project that I ever did um, went not so great. I applied all the things that I'd learned at university in terms of like – you know, this sort of waterfall approach to project management, so creating specification documents and defining scope and moving through this period of um of sort of you know project start to finish to handover, mm-hmm. and it just failed me like that. Um, I wasn't able to accurately contain the scope to the point where they were comfortable with it, and they kept asking for more and more, and so eager to please and young and you know all without right. having known any better. I, um, I felt as though that that burden was on me, and the onus was on me to to make that happen and to sort of meet their needs. so I kept pushing out deadlines and trying to include more in that scope and desperate to try and keep the costing you know locked in and um, it ended up going really, really badly, and I had this like huge epiphany and um, in searching for solutions to so that, I came across all these amazing technologies and and methodologies when it came to projects like agile and you know it, that that eventually led to me finding Ruby. Oh, okay. which is a software programming language which um, at that time um, was great for this rapid prototyping, great for like fast development and allowed me to move more. Like all I wanted was something that would move at the pace of learning so I could learn something and I really wanted something that would like I could execute something at a, at a similar sort of pace. And What, the way what,
0: what were you we using before then? What languages probably?
1: I was using what they taught at university, right? So extreme. I was using ASP. Oh, dot, I was using oh, ASP, not even .NET. Fuck. At university, we got taught ASP Classic, right? And so I walked out of university with, like, you know, this specification documents under one arm and, you know, uh, what were we using, like Microsoft databases and uh, Microsoft coding infrastructure under the other arm and said, cool, I guess university has equipped me to go out there and build some stuff in the world. And sure enough, like, the minute that I walked out the door, all these technologies were completely defunct. And yeah, there's no way. Like, they, I think Microsoft literally stopped supporting uh, some of these tech some of that tech like a couple of years after. So yeah, it was super frustrating. I found myself, I mean, it was frustrating, but what I learned was like, okay, I don't need that. I can teach myself um, how to, how to learn. I can teach myself what these new technologies can do for me. I can become a continual learner. So through teaching myself Ruby and, learning how to implement it on all these new projects that, that we were working on. Um, the idea of, you know, of me actually like learning how to code on the job and how to um, develop the technologies moving forward to be ahead of the game um, was 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 solidly embedded. And there was this whole community of people doing something similar. If you're a Ruby developer, you yeah. know that you have to keep on the pulse of what's happening at the edge of of, of software because the minute that you stop, you, you get left behind. Um, especially in, in Ruby, there's this culture of like... Um, of, of sort of leaving behind legacy in favor of what's better. Now, what's better is a little bit contextual, a little bit opinionated sometimes, Yeah, but certainly like they bred a culture where it's like, no, no, we found out that this is the better way of doing things. And we, it's not that we're going to keep supporting 10 years of, Legacy that we've held behind, we're going to try and push everyone onto this new thing as soon as possible. And so, as a developer in that environment, you have to continually A, learn, and B, be prepared to like uphold your total, you know, all your infrastructure and shift that across. Right. And obviously, that's a lot easier when you're a lighter, more nimble startup than it is when you're, you know, a few years in or whatever else, or a massive company. Yeah. So, there's, you know, big consequences to that. But um, the general vibe is that if you're on the edge, then you'll keep moving with the edge. Okay. And so,
0: you'd been doing this sort of consulting work for people. So, you're basically developing for people. When did it get to the point where you were like,
1: I need to create a co-working space? (laughs) (laughs) What, are you saying that's not a logical progression? (laughs) No, no, that's a a good question. Yeah, I mean, yeah, along like having had that learning, um, there was something in me. I suppose I've always been relatively community focused and I love this idea of like, um, you know, like sharing our learnings and all of us together and, you know, empowering a community. And I wanted to pass on those learnings. I was like, whoa, I've had a horrible time trying to mediate all these risks and uh, trying to, you know, apply what I learned at university. I, I became sort of anti-establishment because I'm like these huge institutions have like guided me to this point where I felt like I should be able to implement these ideas and this learning to, to build something for myself. Uh, But that wasn't the case. And so I turned to the people, I turned to like community and thought, okay, well, what does it look like at the edge? What does it look like to do this? um, Well, and I found like all these people who are building technologies who are open to like agile um, methodologies. So I mentioned the, the deviation from what I'd learned at uni um, to a better methodology in my mind was, it was agile. So agile would have had this iterative approach to, to that, Mistake that I spoke about, um, where I could have learned early on and responded to change more so than like trying to build to a spec end to end. And go back and fix it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. We could have like continually developed both mine and the client's understanding around what we were building as we learned more, as it, as you know, product was being shipped. Yeah. And so Agile um, became like a solution to that problem for me. And like I was seeing it from the rooftops. I wanted everyone to know about Agile. Like I'm pretty (laughs) passionate about that sort of stuff. So if I find something that is, groundbreaking for me i like want to tell everyone (laughs) so like i needed people to tell and i only had my team and my sort of community of people in and around me so yeah for me there were so many opportunities uh that saw me wanting to build that kind of community and it wasn't about the space i didn't want a workspace i just wanted the community i just wanted that group of people right
0: okay so the goal wasn't to have necessarily a workspace (sighs) no
1: I'm uh, not a real estate mogul by any means. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm like, yeah, I like love being in that community environment with all these people bumping heads with that electric energy in the air.
0: Yeah. So um, how, did, how did you put it all together? Did You you had a few people you knew and you're like, all right, I'm just going to go find space.
1: Yeah, yeah. So like in 2008, 2007, 2008, I feel like Melbourne really started to come together as a community in itself. Twitter was going really well. There were Twitter meetups. There were um, these small conferences and unconferences that were happening where like all these like bright sort of people who are progressive and outside of these larger institutions. Again, this is like my anti establishment type phase. So people who are like on the edge were like coming together and, and all these communities were being formed. Um, people who could thrive without structure, people who could, you know, but these were my kind of people, right? And um, they were like pioneering outside of, they were leading, basically. And, you know, they were popping up in places like Trampoline, which was this unconference put on by some Melbourneites. Okay, It was like the first unconference uh, of its type in Melbourne. It was like a coming together of all these ideas. Think like a, a mini TED that's like totally peer-driven, so totally attendee-driven. Uh, you could come and share what you're passionate about. And oftentimes the kinds of people who would be attracted to these conferences were attracted about some pretty awesome, sophisticated, big ideas. Right. Uh, so this sort of stuff would have us buzzing. And then by the end of the conference, everyone would be like, on a high, and like asking, Oh, we can I get more of this? And then the conference would end, and then everyone would have a drink and say goodbye, and you you know, have to wait until the next one. Disobey. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, through all these sorts of experiences, I had this idea of like grabbing that energy and continuing that on a day to day thing. I'm like quite an altruist. So I was like, Why can't we just have this all the time? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, hence the co working space started. Started just to uh, invite in my sort of personal group of friends and people from these conferences. Um, at the time, our consultancy was growing, and so I started to, um, you know, invite the people who we were um, employing within the consultancy or contracting into our consultancy to sort of stick around in between projects. Okay. Um, and so little by little, our, our community grew.
0: Right. And, um, God, there's so much I want to ask. When did you go – did you ever – like you obviously l- – had read about co-working sp- – because I'm assuming because the U.S. is generally ha- ahead by a few years. Had you read about
1: co-working spaces before? No, I hadn't read about co-working spaces. I didn't know that it was called a co-working space at the time. Right. But, you know, a few months in, um, I, I sort of did my research and started to look around at what this concept was. And, um, you know, in Melbourne there was other spaces that were like share spaces where you could rent desks. Okay. Um, there was a group called J-Tribe who are yeah. a uh, mobile software consultancy yeah. and they had this, you know, sort of a, a space where Invado, um, the early Invado team were actually based inside that space. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was that kind of thing happening, but it wasn't happening to the point where it was like community oriented. It wasn't like about cultivating, you know, it was more like a shared office type environment.
0: Yeah. And when was the moment when you went, I'm, this is actually a business in and of
1: itself. Yeah, it wasn't for a while. <laughs> so for the early stages, I was, uh, really focused on it becoming people oriented, community oriented. So like we didn't charge people for like the first six, 12 months. Right. Cause, um, in my mind, it was all about, it was about feasibility. Could this actually thrive as a, as a people oriented thing? Could it be a community? Um, and so yeah, I was desperate to try and make it open and inclusive and have people feel comfortable with it. Cause I knew that it was a bit of an edgy, like it wasn't something that was like, mainstream that people might have learned about or heard about there were other co-working spaces so the one ones that were around at that time that were sort of the go-to's there was one in um, Philadelphia called Indy Hall okay and the main one that I was really focused on was in San Francisco called Citizen Space right Um, Citizen Space is sort of there uh, today but certainly isn't the co-working leader that it was back then And Indie Hall has, you know, done really, really well and is a great example of like a community-led co-working space. Okay. Um, But, yeah, certainly at the time I felt like there wasn't a whole lot of, um, you know, references to turn to around what this was going to look like. And that worked really well because I feel like we started from scratch and first principles around how we wanted this to work, how to cultivate an uh, you know uh, an environment where people felt comfortable. Yeah. So for the first little while, it was just me and my team greeting people whilst they came into the space. And I have no idea how people found this place. <laughs> Our initial place was in Cremorne, and it was like a 77 square meter, like a tiny, tiny uh, apartment that they would rezoned to be a business, like businesses. Okay. So it was commercially zoned and they were like it was an apartment building kind of thing or all, all these adjoining townhouses and we had this like three-story tiny um ex apartment and people would stumble in i don't know from having heard about it somewhere <laughs> probably through like again that was it we didn't do any promotional marketing or anything so it was all around word of mouth right. so we never had issues with like the wrong kinds of people coming into the space and to a degree we don't still today because it's always been word of mouth. So you're always attracting those people. And there's always that level of um, vetting that happens through yeah. you know, uh, people in your community, bringing those people in. Um, and so back then, everyone came in via word of mouth. And yeah, we'd, we'd greet them. We'd say, hello, welcome into the space, find them a place to sit. We had a, a whiteboard that would sit on the wall. And um, it said, like, you know, what's your name? What's your Twitter handle? And what are you working on? And that was the extent of, like, how we exhibited who was in the space and what they were working on, trying to create that cross-pollination, turn, turn on that community vibe and really make it something that everyone could get involved with. Okay. And
0: so then you moved to uh, – what's the street again?
1: Stewart street. street. Stewart Street, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So then at that time, our community was growing. Like, we started to – like, there was more and more people there. So, so we sort of had about 20, 15, 20 people coming every day. And it would ebb and flow. We started running events. Um, we had people Uh who had like serious expertise around certain subjects. So again, like I was super passionate about agile and and Ruby development. So I was desperate to run events and share, um, what it was like to, to be able to like rapidly prototype. So, um, me and my team ran events on like introduction to HTML, how to build a basic site in Ruby, you know, how to sort of build some basic applications. Um, we, there was, Kate Kendall came in and ran a social media workshop. Um, you know, there were all these people who ran workshops on different things. We actually had um, the first, uh, one of the first, maybe if not the first, uh, Lean Startup meetup in Melbourne. There, really, and I'll never forget. It was about ten people. Uh, I'll find a photo of it somewhere and stick it up for you. But there was um, about ten people sitting on crappy IKEA chairs in like, oh, like a space that's probably about two meters by, or maybe three meters by four meters. And I'd found uh, actually someone in my family had this like huge rear projection TV because I really wanted um, the speaker who it turned out to be Collis from Really? So Collis from Invato spoke at this event with 10 people, Lean Startup event. And um, yeah, I got a friend to help me like uh, carry this huge TV, huge rear projection TV. It was like a meter by meter and a half by a meter or something like huge TV up the stairs to, so, so Coles could show his presentation and sort of tell his story around Envato and Lean Startup. Wow. And that must have been 2009 or 2010.
0: So, so really people, if they're considering starting a meetup, they shouldn't worry about how big or small it is. They should just go for it, right?
1: When people ask about starting a meetup or people ask about starting a co-working space, it's never about the, the size or, or anything yeah. like that or the space. It's always just about the people, right? Whenever you find those sorts of things, the defining factor around success is always the people. So like you just, you're wanting to start a co-working space. Our co-working space back then was in a tiny building. It was like you couldn't find it from the street front inch. Um, the only way that you'd hear about it is via word of mouth, yet people would come. It's right. just all about the quality of the people that defined um, the growth of I9 right. back then and also today. So, yeah, certainly from a meetup point of view. And so these these events started to grow and grow and grow so much so that um, one of our HTML events grew so big that we couldn't fit them in our workspace and were really stressing and so I had to call the local pub which is the Cherry Tree Hotel um, yep. is, it, is it still there? Yeah, the Cherry Tree Hotel is still there around the corner and uh, I said to the guy hey listen normally we come in for a drink so I was wondering if I could bring like 40 friends who could come in and hold a workshop in your in your back pub and so uh, you know we took over the back of this pub and had a an HTML workshop Nice Yeah, which was fantastic so like Yeah, everything started to swell and and grow. Um, And we also had like this hardware community that was part of our space, Um, the Connected Community Hackerspace, it was called. And so they, you know, if uh, i9, in amongst these communities, we started to attract uh, certain themes. Like i9 certainly is very sort of startup-y. Um, in terms of the types of people that it attracts, like we have our roots centered in, in sort of uh, software development, agile, entrepreneurship, you know, innovation, that type of thing, as well as, you know, social media design, edge, um, people who are leading in the industry. Mm. Um And so, uh, uh, along with this, there was this other community that was forming, like sort of alongside ours, called the Connected Community Hacker Space, which was sort of the hardware version of what we were doing. So, if if most of our members were working on like software projects and web-based projects and mobile-based projects, these guys were working um, on hardware projects. So, right. like uh, Arduino's electronics. Yeah. You know, if it was today, it'd be drone tech. Back then, it was probably like, you know, UAV tech. Yeah. And so, um yeah, I was really passionate about trying to bring together these communities and have the one space where, you know, uh, all these innovators could sort of come together.
0: And it was working, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I looked for a space that was like half co-working software type and half hardware. So like with the hardware requirements, with these software requirements, you're talking about like carpets, quiet space, cool maybe, um, some light music, you know, uh long desks and whatever else with your, with your power in the hardware space, you talk about concrete floors. We can have heavy machinery and and do like have sparks flying out from oxy welders and ventilation (laughs) for electronics. So all that sort of jazz. So there was two distinct needs there, sets of needs. And I searched and searched and searched to try and find a space that met both or had two separate areas. And um, in the end, I found this beautiful place on Stewart Street right. that had, a you know, the, the bottom level, which was like concrete flooring. And then level one, which was, you know, had these 200 year old Tasmanian pine floors and, you know, was an open warehouse that, you know, it was, at the time it was disgusting. It was like, really? ugh, the well, floors- hang on, but
0: what's the company that was originally there? Like the old, like years ago, because it's, it's like a heritage build, building, is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, it's the Australian Knitting Mill building. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It hadn't <laughs> been like used by them for decades and decades. Yeah. And at that time, the landlord was using our level as as a storage space. About oh. six to seven years before we were there, uh, Red Bull had a pop-up um, Red Bull Music Academy there. Okay. So, there'd been a little bit of stuff going on but um, not for a long, long time. So it was dusty. It was dirty. There was no fit out at all. Like there were these horrible coloured uh, pylons that um, held up the roof. It was just a a mess. And so um, I saw this place and thought, I can turn this mess into something awesome. I love this idea. (laughs)
0: So did you get in there and you thought, right, I could really do something with
1: this? Uh, I have always had this romantic vision of like renovating a warehouse. When me when I was same. I don't know why I yeah.
0: same. really you see it in movies
1: and, totally. and whatnot. I think we must have seen the movies. Like <laughs> as kids as um you know in high school me and my mates used to sit around drinking coffee drinking way too many lattes and um you know ideate like talk about ideas and just talk rubbish. Um uh, but certainly like you know in our rubbish ideas and patterns started to form. And we always had this idea of like renovating a warehouse and all living in this warehouse. And so for me, I think plant, that planted a seed and I saw this and thought this would be an awesome place for, you know, a clubhouse or like for a, for a co-working space for a space where innovators could come and and there would be, I love this idea of also breathing new life into an old building. So the Australian knitting mill is like this, you know, it's branded all on the outside. It's this old, old building. Yeah. i um, sort of a relic of Richmond in a lot of ways. And, you know, to come in and like retrofit, you know, cutting edge, high growth technology startups was like you know, a dream to me. I love that idea of like repurposing the old for the new. And so, um, yeah, uh, at the time, the hardware community was was all onto it. But um, what actually happened was I couldn't get the bottom level across the line in time and we were being kicked out of our previous place. So I just had to bite the bullet and sign you the lease. It, yeah. yeah, So we started out on level one there. And, yeah, in the end, um, the connected community hackerspace ended up finding a new home in in, in Hawthorne. Okay. And so, the, the two communities sort of parted at that time. Right. Um, and the reason why I bring that up is because now I'm super thrilled about the idea of having – we have this maker space over in, in the Dream Factory.
0: Yeah. So, one thing I'm intrigued by is, uh, you know, why didn't you just think, all right, I'm going to make another co-working space but on the southeastern side? Was it that you purposely wanted to do something on that side of the city or was it more that Melbourne has changed so dramatically in terms of available space that that is the best area to do it?
1: Yeah, good question. So essentially through my experiences now growing these co-working spaces, like the two co-working spaces uh, that are in, in Richmond, okay, um, I learned a lot about what it makes – to have like a thriving co-working space in terms of like community, what you need in terms of sizing, how you make the economics match up, um, how to still keep it community-oriented and people-oriented, but um, ensure that you have enough like budget for growth and for all the amazing things that that kind of community would want to put into a space, right? And so um, we look, we're look, we looking for a large space. I and mean, when you're looking for large floor sizes, there's not a whole lot of areas in Melbourne. I have like a, a whole – I've had like a whole bunch of uh, realestate.com and com. Um, alerts telling me whenever these sorts of buildings come online, and to try and find places that are, you know, two, three, four, five thousand square meters. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't come along that that often. Yeah. And so, yeah, for us, we we're looking for the right kind of space that uh, would be in the right area, and you know, where there was going to be community that we could activate and we could bring in and really uh, enable. Okay. So for us, it's not just about this. Like, it's certainly not at all about the space, right? So it's always about the, the community. Right. So yeah, I, I guess for me footscray was super exciting because one it had the potential to be a new space a new community the west side of melbourne has so little of that and you know it there's it's they're so passionate and there's so much of a community vibe over there yeah. it also has like a really high concentration of state home workers so people yeah. who work from their their home or their or their bedroom or whatever yeah and so second of all there was uh, like a uh, a hardware space so this building that we that we found or that came to us in some way shape or form had um, had room for co-working but also had room for uh, you know a hardware space so this is like back to my dream of having that that hardware and that software space side by side where people can come in and, and prototype some stuff in software and then go downstairs and build out a hardware prototype and maybe do some firmware development so all that sort of stuff could happen in the same building wow and then you marry that you go one step further so over at the Dream Factory, Inspire Nine Dream Factory. There's like a whole bunch of these things. So there's like the Inspire Nine Co-working. There's the Inspire Nine VR Lab. So a place where VR developers can come in and you know do a course in VR, um, deal with VR mentors and help them develop their skills. They can build out VR experiences. And there's labs there where they can uh, plug in their componentry and use any one of the set of the art headsets like your Oculus Rifts and your, your HTC Vibes and like oh, trial wow. out what they're building. So imagine being able to, as, as well as like the hardware space downstairs, Fab9 is the name of the makerspace. Right. So this makerspace has like, you know, a timber shop, a metal shop. So you can do, you know, CNC, you can do, um, you know, 3D printing, laser cutting, like all this sort of stuff. So imagine the idea of like going upstairs, uh, sort of prototyping something in a, in a CAD and then, uh, you know, te- importing it into uh, a VR lab and being able to walk around your, your model of whatever the 3D uh, item that you're building is going downstairs and sort of 3d printing, you know, a prototype of that. And then, you know, going one step further and actually building out a full scale model, of yeah. whatever it is that you, it might be, for example, a drone or, you know, uh, a anything. sewing machine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It could be absolutely anything. Yeah.
0: I, I look, I, I look at it cause I've seen all the different spaces and I think it, it is, you've really hit the mark there because you've gotten that perfect mesh of both. A lot of places they, they seem more corporate, which is fine because maybe that's maybe that's what their target is but that can be hard when you're focusing on startups um, but yeah I mean I love the Inspire Nine space I don't know what it there's something about it I think it going back to what you said before maybe it's just that combination of the old and the new the the sense of community going on it's there's something there's definitely something about it whereas
1: a lot, a lot of the newer places they're very sectioned off I notice mm. um yeah, well, we've been very purposeful about that. I mean, the vibe that you're talking about, I feel it too. I love, I love being in that space. I love the energy, and I think that it's come, it comes down to like when when it was old and decrepit and defunct, and no one had been in it for years and years and years. Um, the community came in and and we sort of refurbished it. So all the pretty much all the works in the in the Richmond building on level one were done by members of our community. Mm-hmm. So our community came in and hammered every single nail on those on those floorboards. Really, they came in and sanded all the floors. They did all the 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 floor varnishing. They painted the pylons. They you know did all this stuff. We installed the kitchen. Like the flooring was um put to be, together all the concreting, all the tiling someone's father in our community was a plumber. He came in and installed the the, the sink there, which is still there today. So everything was like community-oriented, community-built, community, like blood, sweat, and tears. So when you walk into that space, it's not, beautiful it's not polished i'm not sure if you've been to the new hub but that is beautiful like the new hub is just beautiful a dream factory no no uh sorry hub melbourne is another co-working space in melbourne and it's like beautiful marble flooring and you know all this sort of stuff it's quite an experience yeah but inspire nine is none of that it's um it's just like that community feel
0: yeah now when someone gets their community and you've got your community how do you what sort of I noticed you wrote about the principal things that you need in the community. How do you sort of, you know, you brought all the people in. How do you foster it and make sure it grows from that point as a business and as a community
1: from there? Yeah, it's a good question. I think ultimately a lot of those sorts of things have to be somewhat intuitive to the people who are running this space. Okay, I feel like um, there's lots of formulas that you can roll out, but uh, it's like the hospitality thing. It's like unless you're passionate and conscious of of how to um, cultivate an experience for people, um, then it's a hard one to sort of nail down like if you're trying to teach someone how to do a how to how to put on an experience without them ever like going through that or seeing that working it's like super tough yeah so i mean for me like yeah i think yeah i think for me it's just like around that passion for for cultivating experiences and then like little by little throughout our awesome teams that we've had over the last uh nine seven years that at Richmond uh, through Inspire9. We've just sort of iterated on that and and transformed that and tried to boil that down to what are the core aspects that make up an awesome community. Do you think that... Things like events are really crucial to it, though. Totally. Absolutely. Like, events are about, for us, like, events is one of our core metrics as a business. So, Inspire9 actually measure, like, the amount of connection that we cultivate in our wider community as a core metric of our our business. So, we ensure that we're connecting with our community, mobilizing these new interest groups, like your meetups and, and all that sort of thing. Um, to come together and like have a home where otherwise they may not, right? So yeah. it's about like giving them a platform to connect with their wider community, because that's sort of how Nine started initially, right? As yeah. this vision to to connect that that community. Um, nowadays we have this you know awesome four and a half million people around Melbourne, and like there's new ideas. Like if you have an idea about what you want to build next, or um, a certain technology that's starting to get passionate about, coming together in a in a space with like minded people and sharing what you learn and what's going on in the industry like that's yeah. that's the dream that's that's awesome
0: so i'm thinking about uh thinking about tribes so you've got with inspire 9 and the other co-working space in Footscray, you you've really created a physical community how does that translate to what you're doing with with tribes and that that app?
1: Tribes started as an incarnation of that whiteboard on the wall. So when I mentioned before about the first experience people would hit when they came into Inspire9, and it was just like that name, name, Twitter handle, and what you're working on, on the whiteboard wall at at the first co-working space that we had. Um, Our initial uh, rollout and inspiration for Tribes was just how do we make that something that scales a bit better, where people can dig a bit deeper and like find out a bit more around what's happening from a community perspective. And so we sort of just digitised that same thing and then we realised that it's a great way of sort of finding out who else is in the space and, you know, who's part of our member community and how to connect members and so on and so forth. And it sort of turned into this platform for us being able to manage our memberships. Okay. So, yeah, nowadays... Um From a uh, sort of community toolkit point of view, it's a great way for our community team to manage uh, memberships, to see who's come in and out every day, register people for events, uh, also handle things like meeting room bookings, and it does event management. And then from a community perspective, it allows you to see like – which members are a part of the community, which teams are a part of the community, like, you know, curate your profile a little bit and right. share who you are, what you're working on. Okay. And then also like a platform, like a more intimate platform to to share you know, like highlights of what you're working on, industry news, all that type of thing.
0: Yeah. So in,
1: in a way it's um
0: taking sort of the infrastructure that you built at Inspire Nine and then you know, because it sort of reminds me of how Amazon just took AWS and sold it to people because they were using it anyway. So, is this sort of this software something that you would have used already at in night Yeah, if it was out there?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'd say we probably would have used it. Absolutely. Yep, yeah, yep. this is uh, certainly solving a lot of the problems that we had as an early stage co-working business. And nowadays, we get to, again, like share that with a whole bunch of other co-working spaces. Right. Cool. So now there's like uh, you know more than 50 co-working spaces on the platform who are all adopting those same principles and using that to manage their memberships and bring their community together to share.
0: Yeah. Now um, there's a few things I want to get into, but um, you know I'm I'm restricted by time, so I'm I'm just intrigued. We were talking before about Melbourne and the growth and um, that is happening in terms of construction here. Um, You've had the opportunity to to build your own communities, you're in San Fran now. What is it, you know, if, if all of a sudden you were made Minister for Planning in Victoria or maybe you were just in charge of planning in Melbourne, what, what are some of the things that you'd like to see changed here? Like maybe it's something that you've taken from San Fran or whatever.
1: Is there anything in particular that you would do? Planning is in from a
0: from an infrastructure point of view? Either physical infrastructure, physical infrastructure, community. Like as an example, I look at Docklands, and it's there's there's just nothing there. You know, there's no sense of community there. So I'm just intrigued to hear is, it, is there anything that you've ever thought in your head like this is what I would do if if I was in charge of Melbourne?
1: Uh, look, if I was going to be uh, radical about it, there's a lot of things that I'd do. First of all, I mean, I'd probably enable a whole bunch more co-working spaces, like co-working spaces. Uh, aren't just spaces uh, where people can come together. They're surely the future of work. Like people aren't going to be moving into the single office building every day for, for work. There's um as, People become more enabled by technology. They can work from anywhere, and like video conferencing becomes standard. Um, people use tools like Slack to communicate with their teams. A lot of their work is done online, so then the need to come into the one physical space every day is, you know, becomes obsolete. Yeah, that means that you can move somewhere that's like much more lifestyle oriented to do your work. So it moves somewhere between like equidistant from your coffee shop to your house, like yeah. somewhere that like works with you and what you want to do and how you want to work. A lot of the emphasis around these co working spaces is like, um like not only does it adopt this principle of the future of work, but also it's like a more human way of working. If you think about office spaces now, they're (laughs) much more inspired by the industrial revolution than they are around like biomimicry or anything that's like existing out there in, in nature and and science today. So they've just taken this open factory floor where all these machines were like, you know, every two and a half meters across the entire factory and just replaced them with cubicles and made it 70 stories high. So that's, that's our current incarnation uh, in a lot of office buildings today, slowly, little by little, we're starting to see these like co-working trends or hot desking trends move yeah. into these organizations. And like that sort of stuff is running rampant. So f- how does that, what does that mean for a, from an infrastructure point of view or from a development point of view? Yeah, I think that first of all, like you, you speak about um, the Docklands, I feel like anywhere that you have a community there needs to be the right kinds of people to cultivate and be a part of that community like community requires leadership and requires like the heart and you can't insert that you can't uh you can't write that on a on a brief and hand that to someone to execute it has to be you know, like intuitive to them it has to be something that they you know love and believe in, and want to live by it's that passion like you ask anyone on the inspire nine team um yeah like the people that are there in our inspire nine team are there because they they care about the product right i love having them they're fantastic uh people um and one of the reasons why we all work, we're all working together is cuz like we care about what we're doing and this is like an awesome thing that we believe needs to exist in the world and i feel like that in some sort of way needs to happen inside of all these co-working spaces around so yeah what that means is like activating people who are on the ground who care about this sort of stuff and can and can cultivate a community in and around them um all over the city would be would be a good thing yeah um what else would I do? I mean, what else would I do? I'd probably just ban cars. Yeah. I feel like, I mean... <laughs> I'm, intri- get... I'm intrigued by that because, I mean... Obviously... Sorry, drive, drive, drive. Cars with drivers is what I would ban. Yeah. So, like, let's get super progressive. Like, fast forward in five years. And again, this is like my principles around rapidly pushing for what is edge and not creating much path for legacy. But um, certainly, like, driverless cars and those types of things, we've got all this infrastructure now to to facilitate roads and transport and humans driving all these vehicles. Like, that's going to slowly go away yeah. as uh, as driverless vehicles come on board, as there's efficiency built into it, as, you know, fewer and fewer, um, you know, uh, humans need to make these sorts of traffic light transactions and whatever else. Like, this decisions going to go out the door.
0: It's amazing to me how this isn't being pushed more, you know. Like, you've got to think... Uh, the focus is on how many people will be killed by autonomous vehicles and it's not a focus on how many people
1: won't be killed.
0: Like it's just a mathematical certainty that the machines will be better at driving than us. So
1: fascinating. Imagine like being a town planner for Christchurch, where there's all these earthquakes and like a lot of the city has been flattened, horrific circumstances. But like then to be able to put on the hat of like, what is our city going to look like for the next five to 10 to 20 to 50 to 100 years is like super exciting. And like, do you plan for all autonomously driven cars? Or is there another mode of transport that you're really focusing on? Yeah, that city has done a really awesome job at like engaging with these thought leaders in and around um, town planning infrastructure, transport, and yeah, I think that sort of stuff is super exciting. I'd yeah. love to bring some of that here.
0: Yeah, I think that the cars thing is, um, and particularly just no driving in the city though, would be sure. would be immense. Like I've seen how they've done it in spaces in New York mm-hmm. and they've just banned all driving in certain areas and what it's done in terms of like the biggest frustrating thing about living in the city actually is the lack of, you obviously got Queen Vic Market, but it's mainly just businesses. There's no... And cafes that are open Monday to Friday. When you get to Saturday, Sunday, it's, it can be very dead unless you're going shopping down Burke Street, uh, DeGraves. You got these little pocket areas, but it'd be intriguing to see what banning driving on Funda's Lane at this upper part would do. Would there be grocery stalls? How would that change that little strip? And, and what sort of economy or business would that create? Absolutely. That I mean, we
1: have such a, like cars are still a, you know, a big part of, the, the lives of so many Australians. So I think, especially in Victorians and Melbourne's Melbourneites. so I feel like we would still, you know, there'd need to be parking infrastructure for these people to drive from their, you know, 45-minute commute into the city and then park and, and sort of do that last mile on public transport and come in and, and have a, you know, a heavily uh, sort of enabled public transport system that would ha- allow them to be able to cart around the city. Yeah. And there's so much, uh, so much, you know enhancement that can be made to our public transport system to make it better oh for sure um but again that that would just be this is these are my radical ideas yeah (laughs) i feel like there's a long long way that we could go in terms of wayfinding in terms of surfacing information like personalization like if i step onto flinders lane then the first thing that my that the city should show me is like where the closest like nine out of ten coffee shops are because that's that's Nine times out of ten, what I'd be looking for, and yeah, so, so the, the the city itself should be digitally enabled in a way. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, been. you sort of think about the way in which you can enable yourself as a human nowadays, like having information at your fingertips, the likes of your smartphones and the computers that we can now jump around and Wi Fi Wi Fi with. What does it look like to go that one step further and allow you know the city to sort of start to personalize information towards us if they know that I'm a thirty something male. Um, and walking around the city, then maybe they can start to target, you know, even if it's advertising, but maybe inf- informative events in and around the city. Like, tell me something that's happening at the Wheeler Centre. Tell me something that's happening at the, the plenary on Friday night. Like, yeah. start to surface this information to me in a more customized way, in, and that's going to enhance my experience. Yeah, Queen Vic is about to do this amazing. I saw uh, that. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> amazing transformation of their space, and it's like quite topical and a little bit. A little bit, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. I feel like there's, it'd be cool to get the right kinds of people like on board in terms of what that's going to transform into as yeah. well as like just conscious of the, of the mission and what they're doing.
0: It's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I walked through there the other day. God, it's old. It's very old now. Right. The sheds are very old now. But it's, there's something nice about the interior buildings, you know, and being able to keep that and then mesh it with, with the new stuff as well.
1: Totally, yeah. I um, love that. Like I'm at the Queen Vic yeah, whenever I can. It's my go-to market. Yeah. We used to go there every weekend and, uh, and buy vegetables for everyone in now like little Fitzroy community. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's an awesome place. When it comes to startups and,
0: um, you know, investing, you've obviously learned a lot over the years. And now, Angel Cube uh, is no longer. But you—you you said before that you still invest in startups. Last or year,
1: like... yeah, last year I made a couple of investments. Okay,
0: yeah. Is there anything that you look for in particular? You know, is it only the founder? Is it only the product? What are the things that need to be lined up for you to go? I want to invest in that company.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, and. She was shocked to hear me re- reiterate this, like as if it's a it's a, a line of a, of a news article, but not the not the fact. But seriously, like early stage startup investment is just all about the founders. Okay. If you're talking about pre-seed, like you know ideation phase of uh, of startups, um, you know a great idea executed badly isn't like a great return on investment. Um, if you have like the right sort of founding team. That are going to be able to iterate and learn from the market and uh, sort of learn from their mistakes and, uh, yeah, bring together all those collective skill sets. That's the sort of thing that, that transforms industries, that disrupts industries and uh, makes all the difference. And yeah. so, like, yeah, it's just, it's honestly, it's just all about finding that, that, that team and those people who can actually, you know, come to the table with the problems and, and solve them and work through them.
0: Do you, but do you ever go? When it comes to product, do they have to have like a certain amount of? Do they have to have customers? Do they have to have something that that you know is fitting, or that you could play around with to get a better fit? Is there anything when it comes to product that you go, it's got to be it's got to be this for me to consider it?
1: So I'm a product person, so I really like product. So I guess if you're talking about my personal investments, I, I enjoy um, like. Awesome immersive product experiences and then an awesome immersive product experience with no customers is next to useless, right? (laughs) So certainly that idea of like finding out who your customer is and validating your market is ultimately important. Like it's so, so important. And when I say it's all about the founders, that's the sort of skill set that they need to have. They need to have a sense for how to go and do that market research, to do that customer validation and to be able to like find that product market fit. Yeah.
0: Do you feel that... Through these experiences with startups, community, developing, where have you seen cross-pollination? You know, what is the one thing that stood out that you've applied across each different area?
1: Oh, that's that's a really good question because, like, for so long, I was so confused as to why I was deeply embedded in these three areas. Like, I was, like, hard (laughs) into software and product development, hard into community and co-working, and hard into, like, investment in startups, and you know, it took me a little while to step back and sort of look at these areas and talk about where the crossover is and and what that looks like. But I think there is an element of, like, you know, uh, within startups is this sort of uh, this culture of wanting to have, like, a big impact, of, like, wanting to transform and enable people, uh, transform culture and enable people, um, you know, make the world a better place. Like, one of the reasons why I love the Inspire9 community and I love a lot of the reasons why people gather around San Francisco is because it's like a it's like a a big like self-help group for people who just want to change the world. (laughs) And I feel like that's true of people who are like altruistic and want to build awesome software. Yeah. And you know, you can bring an engineering and software engineering mindset to that, whether you're, you know, a guy or a girl or from Melbourne or from, you know, Cape town or, you know, it could be anywhere, but that a lot of the same values ring true. And then with community co-working, um, I feel like that's that 's that whole thing coming together that 's like the people yeah. aspect of it. I feel like um when you're if you're a software developer um building out a wild dream in your bedroom at seventeen um you know at, at some stage you have ideas to push that out to millions and millions of people and that 's the exciting aspect of it yeah. and I feel like these community co-working spaces are just like another launch pad to have like a bit more di- uh, of a direct um feedback loop where you yeah. can, you can affect a few hundred people. There's now two uh, hundred and forty odd, fifty odd people in the in the Inspire nine residencies and, you know, a wider community of four or five thousand people.
0: So it's always been about that's sort of your North Star, just the impact it has on people directly through having product or
1: creating a community. That's I wouldn't different. say that's. I didn't sit down and say that's my north star. I'm heading towards that. Yeah. I've been sort of acting more on intuition in what's attracted me to these adventures. Yeah. Um, but and that sort of
0: seems common across them.
1: It does. It yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very much like I have a, you know, a, an entrepreneur in me, and I believe in uh, inspiring others and cult and, and sort of helping others uh, grow and find out what it is. I, like I believe in people following their passions. I believe in like enabling people to work on the problems that are keeping them up at night, and mm-hmm. so for me yeah certainly i love the the community f- side of it is like that coming together and helping people share and get better at that and then the angel cube the startup investment and um startup side of it is like around yeah giving them a ticket to to get on there and like for me it's like also just like i can bring together all these resources that I've been able to gather in terms of people resources, like networks, access to companies and memberships and, uh, you know, community and whatnot and, like, giving them whatever it is that they need to be able to go and prototype and experiment.
0: Yeah. If you had to – if you could go back and do it all over again, what would you change? Hmm.
1: (laughs) If I could go back and do it all again, what would I change? I mean, it's tempting to say nothing, you know. Um, I'm at the stage now where I'm I'm taking what's happened, you know, in a really positive light and it hasn't been all smooth sailing and it hasn't been, um, you know, a total crunch and crappy any step of the way. Like I love what I get to do every day. I love being in this environment. I love the people who are in this community. I love Melbourne. I love like being in a city and – Began to work on a startup in a in a place that appreciates good coffee because you know we have this awesome you know we have this awesome influx of immigration back in the seventies which brought all these like Italians and they brought their coffee culture and then we turned it into something that was Melbourne esque and yeah. now like it's you know it's a it's a major export and you see it all around the world like I love so many things about the city and the people and what's happening here and yes it's early stage and yes there's lots to come but. Um, and there's huge potential there's like so many people out there with ideas that are keeping them up at night there's so many people out there who are like very very skilled in a certain area areas that are now becoming more and more in vogue like ai like you mentioned like vr like you know cultivating mobile experiences like thinking about the future of work the future of business the future of tech the future of commerce all this stuff it's like super exciting
0: it is a very exciting time to be alive, as uh, <laughs> as old Malcolm used to say. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> what, what was the line? There's never been a, been a better time. Something like that. There's never been a better time to be alive, and everyone just takes the piss out of him now because he's doing absolute shit for startup startup Um, I want to get into some quicker questions as we start to run out of time. Sure. Uh, do you think that – do you think there's – Lessons that you've learned directly or indirectly from from either of your parents that
1: you sort of take with you now. Yes. What, yep.
0: what are they?
1: <laughs> I um was, I had a a, lun- a lunch with my mum uh, on the weekend, and she reminded me that I was like desperate not to be my father in some way, shape, or form. He worked at um, at Goldman Sachs for, you know, well it was JB Weir for like a lot of his time, and um you know I think maybe. Yeah, maybe it was just like the anti-establishment person in me or like, um, you know, I I love and admire my father, but um, maybe it was just like I wanted to go out there and do something a little different and, uh, you know, it was inspired by different things and I, I, um, yeah, wasn't really attracted to the idea of like working for the same company forever.
0: Yeah. Do you, um, is there something that you 100% believe in that a lot of people disagree with you on? Like is there something that seems so obvious to you but not to
1: others? Yeah, I'd say if it was gonna be anything, it would be like my my I, I believe that anyone can do anything. I believe that if you want something badly enough, then you can go out there and make it happen. Whether it looks like, you know, studying yourself to death in order to get an understanding of something. But I just believe in like if you can dream it, you can do it. Mm. When you think
0: of Success, whether it's a person or a situation, what sort of comes to your mind these days?
1: Success to me looks it has a has a direct relationship with happiness. I would say so. Success boils down to what you define as success. Success looks like um, maybe finishing up at the end of a given day and feeling good about where you are, what you're doing. What you've been able to accomplish not just that day that week that month that year, and being excited about the future
0: yeah if you had if if you had to gift not so much gift a book as it the problem with this question is that people go to the first book they've read recently that really had an impact on them, but if you had to choose like one book that has really sort of defined things for you or impacted your life in the greatest way what would what would it be?
1: Of my entire life, hmm. you
0: yeah, know, if you were asked to give someone a book that you think reflects you or has is a, is powerful in your mind, what would
1: what would it be? Uh, again, I'm like tempted to to tempted to push forward something that I've read recently. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I'm not really a one. I'm not a. I don't not, I don't go by one religion. Like I like to yeah. try all the religion and pick and choose what works for me. So in terms of one book, like I'm, i much more likely to recommend 10 and that's probably like the reason why I don't recommend too many books to too many people because uh, I just add a huge pile on their Kindle list.
0: <laughs> what about any books recently that have really, that you've really enjoyed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, from a, from a, business sense what's a good business book that i've read recently um i mean i'm reading uh, i've just finished reading the you mentioned biographies before um the guy who did um uh, walter isaacson mm, who wrote jobs oh no 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 sorry that. uh no no uh Can't polaroid him. the guy from polaroid He's oh. quite a fascinating character. Yeah, right. Just like interesting to look at the way that business was back then, and and I'm I really like uh, companies that are founded in research and how that can uh, go, you know use, be used atop uh, a go to market strategy to make to make big change. Yeah. So he's done some really interesting stuff, and I find that quite interesting.
0: Is that your favorite biography?
1: Because you mentioned you were a big fan earlier of a biographies. No, it's not. I, I like. All of them in different ways. I love reading about Australian politicians, um, okay. like leaders, like we were talking about before. Um, yeah, business owners. Yeah, all. The, I, I'm very passionate about uh, about biographies as well. So, who do you
0: think then has been probably the greatest politician
1: we've ever had? <laughs> the greatest politician? <laughs> um, look, I couldn't. I couldn't say. I really enjoy reading about Keating, yeah. about Hawke, about um, it's, it's that a tri- era. My
0: my. Honest opinion is probably, um, and my parents and my uncle will hate me for it. It's Paul Keating <laughs> because, um, knowing what I know, having done a commerce degree, what he set this country up for through the legislation that he put through, it, it's unparalleled. Yeah. And sort of, although Howard and Costello were very good, um, very good at balancing a budget. Um, they were really sort of on the coattails of, um, they sort of lit a rocket under what he did. And, um, like, you know, if you didn't have that, that background, you'd, you'd think that Paul Keating was the worst thing ever. I know that they had businesses that went bust and they had families and friends that essentially went back bankrupt during that period because of the economic uncertainty. You're going to think like interest rates back then, like 17% or something. Yeah. So it's, it's it's always intriguing when people are on that sort of liberal side of politics and how that how he annoys them, but I think he's probably been the smartest smartest one there
1: and I appreciate that intelligence i appreciate his point of view and i appreciate yeah like the intellect in uh him as a as a man um
0: he's probably been the most in the centre i think. Most yeah. closest to the centre, right, right, right. Maybe him and Howard have been the closest to the centre. That said,
1: um, like I, I quite appreciate Gough Whitlam and, and like what a lot of the uh, the things that he did in the, in that not centre and like in that yeah, sort of yeah.
0: At that point in time, it would have been quite radical, wouldn't it? Sure, but um, sort of had to be had to be done in
1: a way. Mm. Um, so yeah, other books. I mean, if you're looking for something around like self-help or spirituality, uh, I'm a big fan of this book called The Untethered Soul. Okay. Um, what's what's that about the untethered soul is about um, it has one of the best definitions of enlightenment that I've ever read before if you're interested in really? in uh in enlightenment there's this great analogy that it that it paints, which I feel like does a great job of illustrating what that concept is and how to how to think about it so yeah that's that's a good one to go to but it's very much around like an intuitive sense of spirituality if you're after something more you know, more literary, more 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 literal, sorry, than uh, or scientific than something like the happiness trap might be yeah. a good one.
0: Yes, my partner's read that; she absolutely loved it. I've read a few books on mindfulness. Um, I've got, I just bought Sam Harris's *Waking Up*, hmm. which I want to read. That's nice one. Um, I've dived into that whole uh, that whole area. Uh, what is it? Christopher Hitchens Road "God is not great," and there's another one by by Harris that I've got. I'm just intrigued by that, but they're very Dense, and I've seen a lot of their talk, so I I may be covering ground already. No, but waking up could be another good one for spirituality. That's right. Do you, if you could have a billboard anywhere that could say anything, what would it be, and where would it be?
1: It would be. It would be on one of the major highways. I think. I think. (laughs) <laughs> it would be one of the major highways coming into the city and it would be something along the lines of park your car, get out and start your life. <laughs> <laughs> it would be something along the lines of trying to inspire people to break out of this trap that is society, yeah. this trap that is going to work every day and working for this. Especially in Australia, I feel like we're so lucky with like what we can do in terms of... jobs and whatever else like it's it's a we're very very lucky uh especially as a as a startup entrepreneur you can like if you if you fail your company then you can go and work for a big bank and and a couple hundred k and and live quite well and (laughs) try and you know buy that house you've been looking at yeah um so i'd say like yeah break out of that go and work on the idea that's that's really exciting to you and like give it a go maybe just um just
0: underneath the bridge on punt road That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also it's nines around the corner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you do you have any um what do you are you listening to any particular music right now that you enjoy? Any particular docos or movies that you've seen on Netflix that you enjoy?
1: I like going on these rants about how much I hate the um the Spotify interface. So like I'm you know, as yeah, being a product guy, <laughs> yeah, it just frustrates me to no end. I try and like Spotify, but it rubs up against me in so many ways. Uh, my music listening habits, are uh, like somewhere between like Rachmaninoff and Kendrick Lamar, like is, um, yeah, i listen to whatever is sort of out there and being thrown at me. But I, I do get pretty religious about music and I'll listen to an album like 10 times, much to everyone's like annoyance. So i listen <laughs> to it, especially at Inspire 9. Yeah. I'll listen to the same album like 10 times uh, just on loop because like when I tend to fall for an album, I fall for it pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Any particular docos or anything you've watched recently that you've enjoyed?
1: No, nothing comes to mind. I've sort of haven't been doing a lot of watching or consuming uh, in that regard lately. I'm actually more into podcasts at the moment. Um, okay. And it's also Tripod Week, which is like where you try and convince, try and uh, recommend people to jump on the old podcasting bandwagon and, and, oh, really? and yeah, have a go. So, yeah, what, I mean, podcasts. What have you been listening to? Then? Yeah, lately. Um, so, my, my favorite, I, I quite like. In, in the world of fake news, I appreciate things like Science Versus, which go out there and uh, bring a scientific take to a lot of uh, modern issues, whether it be uh, climate change or, um, you know, organic food or, you know, anything around that realm. So it's it actually spun off uh, out of a an ABC uh, radio show Okay, and Wendy Zuckerman. Uh, kicked off the Australian ABC stuff, and now uh, she's moved across to uh, in its podcasting form to uh, what's that? Gimlet Media. It's called Gimlet. That's
0: it. Yeah, they're, the, so they're the big boys in They town. are indeed.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so Gimlet have now brought her across. I think she she's a Californian native anyway, uh, but now she's over in New York and and runs Science Versus. Um, what else? Do I like like I appreciate in the world of uh, <laughs> of Trump, I appreciate um, sound political opinions from both sides of the of the US spectrum. So yeah. I really appreciate. Listening to the uh, NPR Politics podcast, and I try and get opinions, especially from the Republican perspective, because I'm desperate to better understand what that looks like. So I listen to like the Rubin Report, which um,
0: yeah, Ruben Report's really good.
1: Yeah, I feel like um, it's good good input. Um, also, like geek out a little bit on like love and relationships. So there's a, a, a podcast I think called Relationships or Together, maybe. Um, if you're after one from here, from from Melbourne, uh, around relationships and sex. There's uh, one called All We Cannot Say. Um, yeah, th- those kinds of things interest me as well as like your regulars, like a, uh, American, this American life and, yeah. and whatnot.
0: To add to the political thing, I think um, someone like Phil DeFranco on YouTube is quite good at looking at a problem from both sides and showing how it's reported. I like the Inside Trump thing that, you know, Inside.com, they have like a newsletter. Mm, yeah. Um, what's been your take on – because? You know, we got whole past the whole thing of um echo chambers and being stuck in your own little worlds. Now that you're sort of seeing what the right the writer side of politics is about, what what has been your take from it? And why you know, the harsh rejection of someone like Hillary and and why we're sort of descending into this
1: populist sort of world? Uh yeah, sure. I mean I think the the, the, the major troubling thing is just the idea of like uh, of being disgusted by the counterpoint of view. So mm. people who are so far left that they can't see right. And so far right that they can't see left. I think we need to move past this idea that, um, these opinions are invalid or, um, inappropriate in some way, shape or form. Yeah. So just, um, having a better, the biggest thing for me has been like truly understanding the roots of some of these decisions and the policies that, that the Republican parties stand behind. Um, you know, who these men and women are and what, what sort of becomes the foundation of their beliefs and what motivates them. Yeah. Um, and honestly, it gives me a bit of reassurance having that understanding. It's it's all scary when you're in like I live in San Francisco, and so being in this blue, blue, blue country surrounded by all these Democrats or Democratic supporters, it's um it creates this illusion that either you know that we're in massive strife and that exactly the world is is gonna is gonna break down, but you know when you start to um. Back it up a little bit. I can see some of the reasoning behind not necessarily Trump and Trump's policies but certainly like the Republican Party and why why they do the things that they do and why yeah. they stand behind these beliefs.
0: I so. think um, uh, someone like Sam Harris coined it well and he's sort of mirrored what a lot of other people have said that the election in itself and what is happening now is really sort of a repudiation of uh, it seems to be like far left. Yeah, I, I think more so... Far left policies that have put people offside that I think were left behind after the GFC. That's, that's my sort of what, what I've seen from it. And it, it's hard when you, you know, even when you live in a city, Melbourne, you just don't realize, um, what people are going through. And, you know, like he has a quote that rest assured all racists support Trump, but not all supporters of Trump are racists. Um,
1: so it's that sort of highlights it's like the, that philosophy, philosophy argument. Like all planets revolve around the sun, but all <laughs> things that revolve around the sun aren't planets. Sure, it's exactly. A very common misconception.
0: Yeah. So, um, so, things that I think that have happened in the left side of politics that have gone too far has been really what has obviously fueled the really crazy people, but sort of people that are closer to the centre. Yeah,
1: totally. And I think, like, a, what we have to understand is, like, Steve Bannon and a lot of these people who have this vision for the way that the Republican Party is at the moment. And I say the Republican Party and not Trump, um, you know, for a few reasons. One, because, like, it's, it is still hard to, to to think about. But also because, like, there is input there. And this is, like, you know, there there are a whole lot of factors at play. And I think that, um, you yeah, hopefully that will round out what is otherwise, like, quite a scary concept. Yeah. And um, you know, there's there's some true values there behind American culture. America has a very mm-hmm. America has a very specific style of, of freedom and of um, you know their their ideas of governmental bodies and the way in which that plays out is uh, rooted in you know, the Constitution and and yeah. the values that these people have and that inform the decisions that they're making right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, come down to some of these very primitive ideas around the way that the America mm-hmm. is and all that she. She means for the people there.
0: I think it is, though, it, it's something that we need to be aware of here because, I mean, people that I respect that come from a more, uh, we, we call it liberal here, but are closer to the centre than what they would be in the US, have expressed uh, agreement with people from One Nation about certain topics. So it's important that we do it now, we have the conversations now and understand why they feel that way. Otherwise, we're going to. I mean, could you imagine Pauline Hansen being and her party being a balance of power in in our country? It would be bizarre.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really can't imagine. I, I think, I, but I mean, that's probably my my downfall. Like, I'm you know, I have these strong views around the way in which we should be like these global citizens and, and act in a way that enables yeah. people globally. And I loved the role that America played in the Obama administration around like assembling this global mindset and, you know, politically as an as a economic power um, in, the, in the way that they were dominating climate change uh, talks and whatever else all around the world. I feel like that was like being a good citizen and now to close the borders up and say like we are the America and America's... Um, our own country we're going to look after ourselves before we look after the world if we're going to look after the world at all like that mindset i feel like is a complete you know polar opposite yeah away from uh, you know away from that and so i feel like um, that mindset doesn't resonate with me as deeply but i certainly understand why it exists like you look back at the the history of america and like why people chose to to be there and chose to settle there and you know all of its values from you know around the american dream and coming from nothing and becoming something and I, I like now with Angel Cube. I've been lucky enough to speak to some amazing Australians who now live in the states, and they have these incredible perspectives around the different cultures and the way that they uh, they either interact or that they're different. Because it's super important uh, when you're talking to an audience of American investors to sort of paint a picture as to why the startups you're about to see may not look and feel like the uh, the usual pictures they get from American companies. And there was one uh, particular. Australian who'd, who'd spent exactly half of his life in Australia and exactly half of his life in America at that stage. He'd sort of like done this sort of nine or 14-year backward and forward stint where he like, you know, spent nine years here, nine years there, right. 14 years here, 14 years there. And he was in his 70s, but an amazing man. And um, he said like the thing you have to remember is that in Australia if you're walking down the street – no, in, in America if you're walking down the street and you, you know, you, you'll hear people uh, throw around the, the phrase it's a free country and – when they talk about it's a free country, it means like you know it's it's free. It's like yeah, a god given right to be free, and right. you're free to 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 do whatever it is that you want to do. You're free to ride down the down the highway uh, on a motorcycle without a helmet. You're free to do all these things that could potentially hurt you. You're also free to like uh, sort of better like level up in the world. You're free to exploit other people to 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 better yourself, and you're free to to build a company that's going to exploit a whole bunch of people, including. Uh, you know, whoever it is below you uh, in order to be able to like build up something that will make you more free or right. take advantage of a situation. Yeah. Whereas like you counter that with the Australian culture and you walk down the street and like the Aussie phrase might be something along the lines of, Oh, oh fair go, mate. Yeah. And this idea of like fairness Just
0: equalizing. Yeah.
1: Right. So our quality and, and fairness is like something that runs really true to our values. And so there's not this um, okayness around exploitative culture.
0: Yeah. I think you really you did you've hit the nail on the head that um we're in this point in time where the story of nations is diminishing and the story of the globe is increasing and people are sort of repudiating that. Also because it's very hard to do that when you still have nation states. You know, you gotta think of like global issues like climate. You can't really do anything unless everyone's in agreement.
1: Sure, but then what would you say then to like the Trump administration and how that works there because they're, they're taking a step in the other direction. Exactly.
0: I, I, I mean,
1: There's 330 million people now who are in that country as like, you know, one of the world's strongest economic, financial, military powers who are, have now decided that this world vision that you're talking about is no longer the vision they subscribe to. Exactly.
0: I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, to be honest. Um, it's hard. It's very hard. I guess we'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we will. (laughs) (laughs) Look, um, I I am wary of time and uh, I really appreciate you doing this. It's been a lot of fun. Um, Where can people find you on the interwebs and social media?
1: Yeah, on the internet. um, like Inspire9 is just inspire9.com, angelcube.com. Moonshotlabs.io is the software company that I'm working with at the moment where we're incubating some ideas and working on some cool projects. Um my Twitter handles at Nathan underscore Scott. Um Nathan Scott on Instagram uh, and forward slash Nathan on Facebook. Quite like that. I got that one. There
0: you go. <laughs> it's very lucky. Yeah. Um, and that's about it. Cool. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, thank for joining. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thank you for making it this far. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you leave us a review and head to neural.com slash podcast to learn about our prizes, show notes, and gain priority access as a Cognitive Insider. Don't forget to like us on Facebook or Twitter. It's just at Niral, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. Until next episode, thanks for listening.